0: Our reading this morning is from uh, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, none on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Well, it's good to be here in God's Word because in a time of misinformation and disinformation, a time when there are so many competing voices in our lives, uh, so many different visions of what the good life might be. We have God's word as a sure foundation to go back to again and again and again. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would meet us through your word. We pray that we would see the glory of your character in and through it. That way you might know the riches of the grace of God. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You ever been caught off guard by beauty? You know, most of the day, most days we're just kind of going about life, right? Getting out the door, getting wherever you're going, (laughs) maybe not leaving the house in the middle of a pandemic for yet another day. (laughs) Another day where you're in your pajamas all day. Um, Whatever it may be. But there are days, right, when suddenly something catches your attention. Maybe it's, maybe it's in spring, right, when everything all of a sudden is in bloom and you didn't notice until one day all the flowers are out. When we, we lived for a long time uh, in Boston and where we lived there was a uh, community path that led, it was just a block away from our house, but led down to the subway station and it was covered with trees and every fall, inevitably there would be one day, I just didn't really notice that much that, the colors were changing and there would be one day when i was just when i'm just walking down this path and all of a sudden i'd be struck by the beauty of the colors and a little wind would kick up and some of them would be some of the leaves would be falling and i'm just kind of dumbstruck at the beauty of god's creation sometimes we go seeking beauty right you you want to put on that song right cuz it gets you every time you want to watch that movie because you love you love what the experience of it. Sometimes it catches us surprise. Sometimes we seek it out. But there is a mystery to beauty a profound mystery. Anne Lamott uh, tells a story in one of her essays about, about being in church. <laughs> uh, and this is her comment. She says How is it that you have a chord here, and then a chord there, and then your heart breaks open? This is the mystery of beauty, isn't it? We've been thinking these last several weeks, as we wrap up this series in Mark, we'll, we'll get back to it, but as we wrap up the series in Mark, we've been thinking about this group of stories that goes together in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're always together. The story of Peter confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, learning the truth about him, uh, Jesus then explaining to them what he is going to do, the extent of his love that he is going to the cross for them and calling them to bear up their cross. So we learn about the goodness of Jesus and and the calling that he has on our lives. And then this story is the end of that cycle that is always together. But very few people talk about this story all that much. It doesn't show up in a you know, if you have a children's Bible or something like that, this isn't one of the main stories. It's not one that gets told over and over again. It's kind of enigmatic. And I think the difficulty we have with it is it's about beauty. It is about the beauty of Christ. Something about the beauty of what he is and what he is doing is being shown to us. And we have a hard time putting that into words. So I guess I'm going to try this morning and at least touch a little bit of what it means. Maybe we can see a little bit of the mystery this morning as we see that the beauty of Christ reveals, the beauty of Christ exposes, and the beauty of Christ motivates. All right, so Christ's beauty reveals, exposes, and motivates. So what's going on here? We've had this this moment where, where we've learned about who Jesus' true identity is kind of embraced, when we've heard about what he is, and then he takes the three guys that he hangs out with, it seems like the most, Peter, James, and John, up on this mountain, and he is transfigured. The Greek word is the word for, is the verb for metamorphosize. <laughs> it's, he is, he, his appearance changes, and he's radiating light. That's kind of weird. That's actually not how the that's not how Jesus is almost ever described anywhere else. Uh, After his resurrection, there are some strange things about his appearance a little bit, but but by and large, throughout his life, right, he just looks like a normal dude walking around. Right? There's nothing particularly unique about it. There's also something else weird that happens here. He's glowing, and then this cloud rolls in over them. Did you notice that? It's an important detail. Because whenever God shows his glory, whenever, G- whenever God shows up in the Old Testament, he is light, often fire, shrouded by cloud. As if the, the light, the intensity of the light is too much, right? God will shroud it in cloud so you can be anywhere near it, remotely near it. It's kind of weird. This is, this is how it goes. Uh, it, it, in Genesis 15, there's a, there's a, God shows up to make a covenant with Abraham, and it's fire and smoke, fire and cloud. The most important scene, of course, is at Mount Sinai, starting around Exodus 19 or so. God has led the people with fire and cloud, right? Uh, through the wilderness, he leads them there. And that's what's on, what is on top when God comes down on the mountain. It is fire wrapped in cloud. And Moses goes up, you'll remember. Maybe you don't remember, but if you, if you don't know, at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up into the mountain, into the cloud to stand before God. And in Exodus 34, we're told that when Moses comes down out of that cloud, the people can't even look at him. Because it's as if the, 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 the shining brightness of God's glory has sort of rubbed off on him. And it takes time for that to fade. He, it's, almost like a, he's, he's, it's almost like he picked up the radiation off of God's glory. And, and so he has to end up wearing a veil for a while after he comes down from the mountain. Because the people can't even look at him. That's a little bit something like what's going on here with Jesus. And we're told over and over and over again, to see God's glory is to see light. So Paul says it this way in in 1 Timothy 6. He says, God dwells in unapproachable light. Two of the guys that were up on that mountain use the same phrase. In 1 John, John, who was there, says this, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Peter Another one of the guys that was on that mountain says, in 1 Peter 2 says, God called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If that's not enough, <laughs> when you get to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation 21, and you get this amazing, beautiful image of the new heavens and the new earth, we're told there is no sun because God gives it light. So this image of this intense light is always a sign of God's glory being revealed. And here's the deal, it's coming out of Jesus. He's the center point. He is the thing radiating that light out. I mean, if that's not enough, two dead guys show up. Moses and Elijah. We'll get to Peter and his goofball antics in a minute. But, but Moses and Elijah are there. Right, And it, some people will say this is you know, kind of symbolic of the law and the prophets, meaning all of the Old Testament. But there's something more specific actually going on with Moses and Elijah. I already told you that Moses, of course, went up Mount Sinai and saw God's glory. But so did Elijah. I don't know if you know the story. It's in 1 Kings 19. Now, here's a trick. It uses the term Mount Horeb, but that term is used in Deuteronomy also about Mount Sinai. So if, if you're not in tune with two different names for that mountain, you might miss it. But what goes on is the prophet Elijah, at this point, is despairing about the state of Israel. That they have abandoned God's covenant, that they've left him behind, that there's no one left that's faithful. And so, so Elijah goes back to where it all began. He goes back to Mount Sinai. And you might, you might know this story. Uh, Moses goes up the mountain, right? And, and God, God passes him by. But first there's this windstorm. God's not on the wind. Then there's an earthquake, and God's not in the earthquake. And then there's fire that passes by. God's not in the fire. And then he hears a whisper. And he pulls up his hood over his face because he knows God is passing. Now, he doesn't presume, like Moses, to look God face to face. But he's there, isn't he? He went up the mountain. So it's Moses and Elijah who have been into the glory of God, in its presence, that show up. In the Gospel of Luke, actually, it tells us what they talked about, weirdly enough. In the Gospel of Luke, it says they talked about his exodus. He was about to lead. Actually, he uses that term in Greek, exodon. The, 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 he, Jesus was about to lead the real exodus, right? Uh, the one that the old exodus was always looking forward to. But no matter what it is, you see that what we've come into, what they've experienced... And what they are now bearing witness to in front of Peter, James, and John is the glory of God. And here's the deal about the glory of God. That sounds very abstract, doesn't it? Uh, And indeed, I mean, it's interesting that the image in the Bible is always light. Because light is something you see, but also that blinds you. (laughs) Right? So that you can't can't see what is unseen when it comes to God. But theologian Sam Storm says this. I, I love this Explanation. He says, glory is the beauty of God unveiled. Glory is the resplendent radiance of his power and his personality. Glory is the external elegance of the internal excellencies of God. Wait for it. Glory is what you see and experience and feel when God goes public with his beauty. The glory of God... It's what he shows when we see his character manifest, made clear before us. And look, it left such an impression on Peter that in 2 Peter, the second letter that he wrote, when he talks about being an apostle and being an eyewitness, do you know what story he specifically mentions? This one. He says, I was there when I heard the father say, this is my son. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> That's the story he tells, is this one. Of all the stories he can mention about being an eyewitness, it's this one. Because this is a moment where he's getting a peek at God's glory. In fact, it's not just that Jesus is kind of radiating God's glory, but it becomes this Trinitarian moment, doesn't it? Because the Father speaks. There's only one other time the Father speaks, and actually says something really similar. It's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? At his baptism. This is my son. (laughs) To celebrate that he's his son. And in fact, it's almost a kind of inter-Trinitarian conversation, right? Because it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and this marks the turn towards Jerusalem, towards the end of it, right? It's the father reminding, not that Jesus forgot, but (laughs) reminding Jesus, in the positive sense of reaffirming, you are my son. You know what we're about. You know what we're here to do. You know why you came. And, of course, the Spirit comes in a dove when he's baptized and now is here in the cloud because the cloud is the cloud of fire <laughs> and smoke is almost always associated with the Spirit in the Old Testament as well. So we get these images, right, of the Spirit there also. So it's the Father, Son, and Spirit together. But it all goes through, and this is the deal, to know God, it goes through Jesus. It always does. If you want to understand what is in the unapproachable light, the only access to that is in Jesus, is in the face of Jesus. There's no other way to see God's character but to understand him. And this is kind of scandalous because this is the exclusivity of the gospel, right? This is what we're saying is there's no other way to God but through Jesus. But here's the deal. We're not saying that there's, because we're saying that it's through Jesus, we're not saying it's not be, you're, you have to be a good person. Or that you somehow need to perform. Because that's actually what every other vision of the world tells you. Is you've got to be good enough. And boy, do we live in an era in which there are all kinds of markers of being good enough. And the Bible turns away from all that. The Bible is the most inclusive in that sense, right? Because it's not about what you perform. It's not even about what you, how much you know It's about what God has done to show us himself in his Son. It's the disarming beauty of God's glory refracted through Jesus that shows us who God is. It's that blinding light refracted through the Son, S-O-N. Thus on not you get what I'm saying. It is that light refracted through Jesus that tells us that reveals really who God is. So the beauty of Christ reveals God, but it also exposes us. It certainly exposes Peter, James and John. It exposes everybody, back when Moses went up on the mountain. In Exodus 33 and 34, God actually says, I can't show you the full weight of my glory. I can't really show you. you can see you can't see my face, you can see my back. And you know, He puts him in the cleft of the rock, and God passes by, right? So Moses doesn't even see doesn't even get it all, you know, dialed up to ten, right? Like it's he gets a glimpse of it. Uh this is why Elijah covers his face. He knows he can't take it. He knows that that blinding light would be his undoing. Uh, There's another scene where we see God's glory in Isaiah 6. Strangely enough, Jesus has mentioned this passage several times throughout Mark. If you've been following in this this series, you'll, you'll know that Jesus keeps mentioning this. It's the moment that Isaiah is called by God. But it begins with Isaiah all of a sudden with his eyes open when he's in the temple and he sees the glory of God there. And what is his response? Woe is me. I'm undone. I can't can't be here. This is going to destroy me. And and so it exposes these apostles even here, uh, these disciples, in a number of different ways. First, it exposes their misunderstandings. They don't get what Jesus is about. We've gone over this several times. We keep talking about (laughs) this. It's kind of a theme throughout the Gospels. They don't get what Jesus is about, even though Jesus is telling them plainly what he's going to do. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over by the religious leaders to be killed. I will rise again from the dead. It it tells us earlier in chapter 8 there that he's saying this plainly at this point. They still don't get it. So as they're walking down the mountain... Uh, it was in verse, in verse 9 and 10. So they, they, they're still asking, like, what is this resurrection thing Jesus keeps talking about? So they, they do keep it quiet, but mostly because they can't figure out what he's talking about. Uh, so it exposes their misunderstandings. And then, they, you know, and then we'll talk about Malachi 4 in a minute. But they're even asking back to that passage about Elijah and saying, what is this about? So they don't get it. Uh, It exposes their pretensions as well. And this is where Peter is always there to put his foot in his mouth. Because, look, Peter must have at least understood the symbolism of what was going on. And instead of being in awe and keeping his mouth shut and, and waiting for what reveals itself, Peter just starts blabbing oh, Moses is here, Elijah's here, let's just, you know, set up some tents, let's hang out, let's set up camp, we're just going to hang out here for a while, right? This is, it, it's, it's crazy, right? It's, it's such a bad idea, and you get the, you get almost the impression that he just continues to ramble, and if it weren't for the voice out of heaven, he just would have kept talking, right? Uh, you get this impression that Peter's just sort of talking to fill the space, because it's awkward, It exposes his pretensions. Peter was brought there, but, you know, the fact that he doesn't actually belong there is uncomfortable. And it exposes their self-centeredness. So you see this, especially again with Peter, where, look, in the passages leading up to this, Peter has had the audacity to tell his rabbi what he thought he ought to be teaching. He's had the audacity to tell God's Messiah what his task ought to be, And even now, he's trying to provide for God himself. exposes all these things about us. And this is the deal. The difference, this is the difference between beauty or kind of a fake beauty that's a spectacle and what real beauty is. A spectacle is about reinforcing our own pretensions reinforcing our own self-understanding. It looks pretty. It may be impressive at some level for some reason, but it reinforces our own self-centered view of the world. You know, the the best illustration of a spectacle is the Oscars every year. Right? Everybody's looking beautiful, all these beautiful people. There's all this gold. There's so much gold associated with the Oscars. But they're there to you know award the best films and uh, look i mean I, th- I think i think film can be amazing i think it's <laughs> great but then you get these speeches and you know some of them are some of them are interesting and helpful and good but a lot of them continue to they they get up they've just been award- gotten an award from other people who make movies and they get up and they say oh doesn't this prove how important what we do is how essential what this work and don't get me wrong like I think film is a great work of art, but what they're doing is celebrating themselves. It's a spectacle. I still watch the Oscars. Don't, don't get mad at me about this. But when you give a speech like that, you're, you're proving that this was all just about celebrating how great we are. In fact, it's the telling speech that doesn't do that. That points towards perhaps the issues raised, perhaps uh, the stories told, uh, rather than on themselves. And that's what real beauty does: it de-centers us. Is instead of a spectacle that reinforces our own sense of greatness, real beauty changes our perspective. It gives us a wider angle. A good illustration of this comes from an essay just titled "Beauty" by Scott Russell Sanders, and he tells the story of, uh, of being the father of the bride, waiting with his daughter <laughs> uh, to walk her down the aisle. And this is what he says. He says, I wait beside Eva in the vestibule of the church to play my bit part as father of the bride. She hooks a hand in my elbow while three bridesmaids fuss over her, fixing the gauzy veil, spreading the long ivory train of her gown, tucking into her bun a loose strand of hair which glows the color of honey filled with sunlight. Clumsy in my rented patent leather shoes and stiff black tuxedo, I stand among these gorgeous women like a crow among doves. I realize that they're gorgeous not because they carry bouquets or wear silk dresses, but because the festival of marriage has slowed time down until any fool can see their glory. This is, a moment, this is a moment of beauty, right? Where he's caught off guard. And it changes his perspective, right? He sees beauty that perhaps he knew was there, but he hadn't noticed. See, real beauty, the beauty of God in particular, changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we think. It's humbling in that way, right? Right? Because we start to realize that we're caught up in God's story, not our own. And that actually it's way better to be caught up in that story. That when it's my story, when it's my own self-centered story, I'm constantly worried. I'm constantly anxious. I'm constantly afraid. But when I'm caught up into God's story, when I see his beauty, when I see the beauty of his character, then I can face this thing. I've got courage. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But you know that you're in the master artist's hands. You know that he is making something beautiful of it. It humbles us, it sharpens even our sense of goodness and truth. That seeing his beauty changes the way we engage what we know to be good and true about him. See, because you can kind of know that God is good. You can know a lot about him and what he's done. But until the beauty of his character sinks in, it doesn't really have traction in your life doesn't have purchase on your soul. I think this is why for most of Christian history, people have talked in one way or another about the beatific vision. Now, there have been some, admittedly, there have been some bizarre, speculative kind of uh, roads that people have taken that idea down. But the idea that the end of our lives, the goal of our lives, is to see God face to face, that fundamentally changes everything about what we're doing. And it gives potency to the things that we know are true about him, the things that we know about his goodness. So, so Christ's beauty, it, uh, it reveals who he is, it exposes us. But it also motivates As they're coming down from the mountain, in, uh, what is it, verses 11 and following, the disciples start to ask about, why do the scribes talk about Elijah? Now, what they're referencing, and it's been referenced also earlier in Mark, is the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, and in the very last chapter, it's a short chapter, chapter 4, we're told that uh, Elijah will come right before God returns, And we're also told, (laughs) funny enough, that the people will remember the law of Moses. So maybe it's Moses and Elijah being there that brings this back to mind. Uh, But they're wondering about it, and it's fascinating to go back and actually read what that passage is really about, because while it ends on this note that Elijah will return before God returns, the chapter is about God returning. That's actually the emphasis of the chapter. Of Malachi 4. So I'll read you the first couple verses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, and that is S-U-N, sun in the sky. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You get what it's saying, right? The white, hot brightness of God's presence is coming. And it will mean either judgment or healing. That fire will burn you up or burn you clean. Like you've been in a fir- like metal in a furnace, right? It's either going to burn you up or burn you clean. And so the whole context of remembering Moses' law and Elijah returning is about the bright glory of God showing back up and what that's going to mean. And so Jesus, you know, he takes that up and says, look, Elijah has come. He's talking about John the Baptist. Elijah has come back. And make no mistake, they did what they wanted to him. And he leaves it on this enigmatic note, right? What, as if to suggest, what are they going to do to me? But it is specifically because Jesus knows that the end is here. That he is the brightness of the Father's glory. That he knows the end is coming. He knows that day of the Lord has arrived. He knows that judgment day is coming Because that's what the cross is. It is the beginning of judgment. It is the judgment day on everyone who has faith in Christ. It was the judgment you deserved. And the beginning of that new life, that healing, is coming with his resurrection. He is beginning the end of all things. He is going to Jerusalem to start the end. This is something hard to get our heads around, right? The the New Testament actually uses a lot of this kind of language about living in the last time. And what it means is that judgment and resurrection have begun. You know, that's stuff about the end of the world. And it's begun because it began with Jesus. And that's what motivates Jesus, right? We talked about how it is the Father telling him, you're my son, that is the beginning and the end of his ministry. That is to say, it's the beacon That sets him on his path to start and is the beacon that that the Father puts out to tell him to finish it. Jesus is motivated by knowing this. By knowing that he is God's glory made manifest in the flesh to go to the cross. And that's why it motivates us. Because we know what Jesus is about. We know that Jesus will not disappoint because we know that the end of the story is already starting to be told. That by the end of the gospel, we have seen judgment day begin. In fact, judgment for your life and mine if we're in Christ. And we know that the resurrection is guaranteed because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. So the beauty of Christ is a challenge to us. Pressing us one way or the other, right? Are we going to try to approach God in his glory, in the fullness of his character on our our own? Malachi warns us what that's about, what that's going to be like. Do you want to stand in the brightness, the white, hot brightness of God's character, naked by yourself? You're going to be burned up. But if we go in Christ, if we are in him, then that heat will not burn us up, but will burn us clean. It is not an easy thing to stand in God's presence. Just like it is not the easiest thing to actually endure something beautiful for very long. We have a hard time doing it. We have a hard time sustaining it. Because that mystery opens up our hearts. But in Christ, we are being changed. That was what we talked about last week, right? We're being changed into his character. And the reason is so that we can stand in God's presence in Christ and be able to enjoy the beauty of God face-to-face so that we will not be burned up, but will be burned clean. Let's pray. Father, we want to know your glory. We want to know what it's like to see you face-to-face. But we know that we cannot endure it on our own. We know that if we were to meet you, It would be our undoing, unless we come in Christ, not on our merits, but on His, not with our own agendas, but with yours. We pray that you would show us your glory in the face of your Son, through all that He has done on our behalf. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.